It's before Zephaniah and after Amos, if that helps. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, I'm on page 1726, if you've got a Bible identical to mine. Uh, but if not, uh, you may need to look it up, and that's okay. All right? Um, I want you to imagine yourself, just for a minute, as you make your way there, experiencing tragedy and being told that you're going to experience tragedy. Imagine the doctor coming in while you sit in that super attractive hospital gown, uh, and you're sitting on that little table, and it's breezy, you know, around the back of you, and you are sitting there, and the doctor comes in, and you feel about as vulnerable as you ever feel in that setting. And he tells you, yes, you have cancer, and it's stage four, and you're terminal. Or maybe you can imagine your kids growing up in your house and not just walking away from the Lord, but running away as fast as they can and telling you that they want nothing to do with you and your God. And you're estranged and cut off from them. Or maybe you get the word that one of your parents or one of your children or your spouse is ill and is not going to pull through. Or maybe the job that you've depended on for your whole life isn't going to be there anymore, at least not for you. Or maybe you hear on the days one day on the news one day soon what some people are fearing is going to be the result of this crisis in Europe with their currency that the entire economic system of the entire world has melted down and taking everything that you had built up over decades of your life with it. And now the money that you carry around in your pocket isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. If you haven't experienced a tragedy like that yet, take heart because you just haven't lived long enough. That day is coming. That day is coming. As Job said, man is a few days and full of trouble. Amen? To be a fallen person in a fallen world is to experience tragedy and death and destruction. Because that is the world that our sin makes out of the world that we live in. And the thing is, we who believe in Jesus don't have to respond to tragedy like other people who have no hope because the same God who used the crucifixion of his only son to redeem the world is the same God who can surely redeem your situation and mine, even in dire tragedy. He is there, and he is able to bring good out of even the worst of things. I mean, who picks to have unemployment? Who picks to experience death? Who picks to go through sickness and then death with a loved one? No one. No one chooses that. But God does work through tragedy and pain and suffering to accomplish his best for us. And it's also true that our relationship with God grows most and best during those kind of times. Amen? 
but no one likes it. So here's the question. How do you talk to God when you don't much like what he has sovereignly allowed into your life? How do you talk to God when you're in the midst of tragedy, when you've just received the worst news of your life? How do you talk to God when everything is not coming up roses and life is not peachy and the wheels have just fallen off your little red wagon? How do you talk to God then? Well, Habakkuk gives us some help with that. He really does. This is a book written at a point in time, but it's a timeless book. One with a message that speaks just as clearly to us today as it did to Habakkuk's people way back when. And God has just told Habakkuk, if you were here last week, you remember this, that God is going to use the Babylonians to purify his people, Judah, and make them holy once more. And Habakkuk is not sure if, that he agrees with God that this is a good idea. He says, essentially, last week we saw this, God isn't the cure worse than the disease. Isn't what you're trying to, the way you're trying to fix this worse than the problem you're trying to correct? And we saw last week that God said, Habakkuk, you need to trust me. And you need to believe that I am just and I am good. And I'm going to bring good out of this for your people and the Babylonians will get justice also for all the wickedness that they have done. And so this week, what we see is a prayer from Habakkuk. And it's a prayer that's written in a poetic way, that's written to be set to music, so that whenever God's people go through tragedy, that they can remember it and trust Him in the midst of it. So what we're going to see is three aspects of Habakkuk's prayer. First, he's going to make a request, and then he's going to spend several verses remembering what God did in the past. And then at the very end, uh, what you're going to see is him rejoicing in his relationship with God. And that may seem strange in light of the fact of what he's been, just been told is going to happen. But we nevertheless see him rejoicing in his relationship with God. And I want to help us grow up into that where we can um, experience tragedy but still be rejoicing in our relationship with God. So you got your Bible, Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1 and 2, you'll see Habakkuk's request. starts off this way, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionot. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do our fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Now, let me address two things you may be wondering right off the bat. First of all, no one really knows what according to Shigionoth really means. Uh, that, that word and forms of it appear one other place in your entire Bible, uh, in Psalm chapter 7, it appears there, uh, and it might refer, there have been all kinds of suggestions, it might refer to the tune, 
Uh, it might refer to the type of song or the way it's to be sung or even to the specific musical instruments that were to be used in performing this, but nobody really knows. Uh, it would have been clear to Habakkuk's originally, original audience, but this is written roughly 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, and we've lost the meaning of that word in, over that period of time. We don't know what that's about. But the more significant parts of his prayer in verse 2. And Habakkuk, as, we, as we've seen so far, has been having this back-and-forth argument with God about what God is doing. And all of a sudden, he seems to realize what he's doing. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm arguing with God. I'm a creature that God made out of dirt. And I am arguing with the being that flung the universe into existence with his word. And all of a sudden, Habakkuk feels very, very small next to God. And he says, he has this spirit of reverence and worship now that he approaches God with. He says, I have heard the report of you. And your work do I fear. All of a sudden, he is aware that God is very big and very smart, and he is small and weak and ignorant. And he says, hey, I all of a sudden realize what I'm doing. So now I've heard about you, and I'm aware of you, and I worship you. And he says, he, he makes a request, he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In other words, in, in the midst of the years, and that, that expression appears twice, it's an idiomatic expression that means before I die or in my lifetime. And what he's saying is, God, I've heard all about how you've intervened in the past, how you've done these great things in the past how you've delivered your people even out of tragedy in the past. Oh, God, that you would do that now, in my day. Let me see it. Let me see how you work. Let me see your deliverance. Let me see how you bring judgment, but then you deliver your people out from oppression and bring salvation to them. Let me see how you bring good out of tragedy. He says, I want to see your hand clearly at work, even if it's in the midst of judgment from Babylon. I want to see God at work. And then he makes his second request at the very end, verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, God, I know we deserve the judgment that is coming. I know we deserve it. I know we have earned it in spades. But don't give us exactly what we deserve. Be merciful because you love us. And after these two requests, Habakkuk does something really interesting. He starts recounting and remembering what God did in the past. And he's just mentioned what he heard about God's working. And so then he's going to start giving some examples of where God brought judgment, and we saw God's hand clearly at work, but also where there was mercy for his people. In other words, God, let me give you some examples 
what I mean. Let me clarify. Bring judgment. Yes, we deserve that. But be merciful to your people and bring deliverance right along with it. Uh, and why does he do this? Why does he do that? Why does he, you know, God doesn't forget. So why does he go through all these examples? Well, before we go through them, I want you to, to know this. It's so that it's for his own benefit. Not for God to remember, but for his own benefit. So that as he's going through these things, he can know, okay, well, when we were oppressed by Egypt, God was there. And we experienced God's judgment. But God was there, and he also brought deliverance. And in the days of the judges, there was oppression on God's people, but, and we experienced judgment, but God saved us, and he brought deliverance. And as you remember God's past action on your behalf, you can trust him in the present and with the future. Because you're looking back and you're seeing God's character revealed and reminding yourself that God was there in the past, he saved in the past, he delivered in the past, he brought judgment, but there was mercy even in that. And I need to remember that because of what I'm about to face. This is what Habakkuk says. He says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode you were on your horses on the chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. And raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hand on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from neck to thigh. You pierced him with his own arrows. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, you're going to have to look at this closely. This is poetic language. And to really uh, understand it, you're going to have to look at your Bible and really see it a verse at a, a, verse at a time here. What verse 3 to 8 are about the power of God's wrath and judgment. And they're about the glory of God being revealed through his actions in history. So look closely at the text. 
in verse 3 and verse 4, we see that Habakkuk describing God as coming from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Uh, Taman is the region to the south of the land of Israel. So actually a word that means south. And Mount Paran is this area that's down in the Arabian Peninsula near Mount Sinai. And it's, this is the area where God was active with his people as they wandered in the desert. In those 40 years in the desert with Moses, after God judged them, God was still with them all that time as they're out in the desert. It picks him as being there with them. God had called Abraham uh, to be his and to make him a great nation. And he said, your descendants will be a mighty nation. And then under Moses, the people actually came out from Egypt and became a nation. They got a law. They got leadership. They were given, a, they were given the land of promise. God said, if you follow me, I will give you the land that I promised your father Abraham. Well, of course, they didn't obey. And so they spent all their time with Moses wandering around in circles in the desert. For 40 years until all of the older generation who refused to go into the land died and their children, whom they said were going to be eaten up by the people of the land, went and took it. And, And so this idea of God coming out of this area for his people is a poetic reference to this time when God revealed himself. When God made himself known at Mount Sinai, and there was smoke and lightning and clouds and fire on top of that mountain, and even as they were led, God protected his people with fire from the Egyptian army all night. He led them with a a pillar of cloud in the daytime in the desert to give them shade, and at night he had a pillar of fire which gave them light. And these two verses are a poetic way of referring to those things, about rays flashing from his hand. That's the lightning that God sent down. And when it talks about how his power was veiled, it's a poetic reference to this idea that, remember, God, God spoke to Moses, I believe it's Exodus chapter 34, uh, where God spoke to Moses and Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, well, hide here in this rock and I'll put my hand over you. And as I pass by, I'll move my hand so you can see me, but you'll see the afterglow of my glory. You won't see me face to face. And God took the elders of the nation up on Mount Sinai, and what they describe as having seen is something that looked like God's feet, because they were so amazed at the glory of the presence of God, all they could do was kind of look out from face down on the ground. <laughs> and his glory was veiled, but it was there was splendor, and they were amazed by it. Verses 5 to 7, uh, Habakkuk's describing how God went forth as a warrior against a variety of Israel's oppressors. In verse 5, 
Habakkuk talks about the plagues and the pestilence. Remember the ten plagues? You've seen that movie, I hope? Charlton Heston, right? Uh, or Prince of Egypt, you've seen the plagues. The ten plagues were real things that really historically happened. Uh, you had first, the, the, they began with the Nile River being turned to blood, and then out of the river came these flies, and then it's either gnats or mosquitoes, uh, and death of much of the livestock, and boils, and hail, and locusts, and darkness, and finally you get the death of the firstborn. And all of them were specifically designed not just as judgment on the people who were oppressing God's people of Israel, but they were also designed as a specific repudiation of one of Egypt's major gods. Particularly the last one, because or the last two, because the, one, the major god that they worshipped was the sun god, Ra. And the Pharaoh and his family, particularly his sons, were, were believed to be the firstborn descendants of the sun god, Ra. And so what covers the land in the ninth plague? Darkness all over Egypt, but light where God's people are in, in, in the land of Goshen, there in Egypt. And then the last plague takes the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who's believed to be divine. They are a calculated attack on false gods and false worship by the living God to show that Yahweh is the only true God in all the universe. In verse 6, we see God standing and, and measuring the earth and shaking the nations. And I think that's a poetic description of the conquest under Joshua when God walked, in a sense, with his people. An earthquake put down the walls of Jericho, and nations of people like the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Mosquitoites, you know, all these nations that are listed as the nations that you're going to conquer. All these nations were conquered uh, for, their, for their rebellion and their paganism and their sacrifice of their children. God said, drive them out. And I think the reference there in verse 6 when it talks about the, ever, the eternal mountains and the everlasting hills being scattered and sunk low, it's not a reference so much to the geographical location as it is to the worship of these false gods that took place on the top of them. And when the nation of Israel came through, they threw down all of these ancient altars to gods like Baal and Chemosh and Asherah and Ashtaroth. Uh, and um, all the gods of, of, of the Canaanites that they worshipped were worshipped on top of hills and mountains. And it, it was believed that that was where these gods and goddesses lived and that worshipping them in these sacred groves on top of these sacred mountains would bring fertility on the land. And God sent his people to destroy all of that. And God was with his people as they did so. And then it, look at verse 7, it talks about the, the tents of Cushan and, and the curtains in the land of Midian. These are people who oppressed Israel in the time of the judges. You remember Gideon? These are the people that he is fighting against with his little 300 guys and his trumpets and clay pots and torches. Where God conquered 
the oppressor, Midian, with clay pots and torches and 300 guys shouting in the dark. God was a warrior who delivered. And in all these instances, God is using some foreign power uh, who had dominated his people for a period of time and over which God's people eventually triumphed because God is with them. God's judgment didn't last forever, but eventually the oppressor himself is overthrown. And so what Habakkuk is doing is he is remembering all these other times and praying that, that this is what God will do with Babylon. That God's judgment by the Babylonians won't last forever, but that eventually Israel will triumph and be delivered by the God who put them under Babylon's boot. Now, in these last uh, five verses of this section, you're looking, uh, we, we've been looking here at the power of God's wrath, but in the next, in the next few, verses 9 to 15, I want you to see the purpose of why God is doing this, which is the deliverance of his people. Verse 9, Habakkuk says that God is like an archer who is confident in his skills and victorious he says, look, ask, give me a, bring me a lot of arrows because we're going to run them dry uh, against the enemy. And at the end of verse 9 through verse 12, you see this poetic description of God bringing victory. And when God fought for Israel, how did he do it? Well, one of the ways he did it was with water. Remember? Like I say, I hope you've seen the movie. They walked right through the Red Sea, and water stood up on either side. And then when the last of God's people got through, what happened? Pharaoh's army pursued, and they were drowned. And Egypt didn't rise again as a world power for 500 years after that. When Joshua took the people into the land, how did he do it? The priests carried the ark up to the, the Jordan River. As soon as their feet got wet, the water parted and the people passed through. In the, in the days of Deborah, the judge who was a prophetess, there was flooding of all these little creeks and wadis that run through the land of Israel. And the enemies of Israel got stuck in the mud along the banks. And God delivered them. And so you have this, this poetic description of God using the water. That, uh, verse 11 talks about the sun and the moon standing still in their place. That's a reference to a battle where Joshua fought, and he got extra hours of daylight directly from God. Don't ask me how that happened. But the God who made the sun and the moon has no problem making this happen if he wants to. God did all this by his mighty power. He defeated nations like Egypt, the greatest empire of the ancient world. God defeated. He defeated Midian. He defeated the kings Oreb and Zeb on the east of the Jordan in the days of Joshua. He defeated Ammon and Moab and all the Canaanite tribes. Well, why did he do this? Well, according to verse 11, I mean, I'm sorry, according to verse 13, it was in order to save his people. 
That's verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. It's for his people. To save God's people and his anointed, meaning the Davidic king, that God does all these things. God intervenes. He fights strongly against all of Israel's enemies. He brought, he brought justice to them. He killed the wicked. He killed those who sought Israel's destruction with their own weapons. And what they sought to do, God turned around and brought onto them. It says in verse, uh, verse 14 there, that they came in like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor. In other words, they came on me unexpected. I hadn't done anything to these people, and they swooped in to kill me. But you trampled the sea with your horses. And again, back to Exodus and the great deliverance at the Red Sea. That whereas the Egyptians brought their horses to chase down the Israelites between the mountains and the ocean, God brought his horses in the ocean and wiped out Pharaoh's army. Why did he do that? Because his purpose is the saving of his people. And again, why is Habakkuk going through all this? So that God's people will remember God's actions in the past and trust him in the present and with the future. God, you did these great things in the past. And we're about to experience your judgment again, just like you judged us in the days of the judges under people like Midian, just as you brought judgment on us through Egypt, you brought judgment on us through Assyria, just through all, through all of Israel's history. God was trying to purify his people from their sin, and he allowed other nations to oppress them that he might deliver when they cried out in repentance. And Habakkuk is saying, God, you've done all this in the past, so I can trust you in the future. And that's the last few verses here, verse 16 and following, his rejoicing. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. And once again, Habakkuk trembles in the presence of God. He trembles with fear also, I think, at the thought of what's about to happen. The Babylonians are not nice people, and when they come in to conquer the land of Judah, it will not be a nice time. It will be a tragedy. There will be atrocities and unspeakable horror that will happen. And that's why he says, rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble. It's the idea of, I, I'm so overwhelmed at the thought of this happening, I can't even stand up. And yet, and yet, I will wait for the day of trouble, knowing that it's coming. Just imagine if you were told today, uh, that by the way, the Taliban has successfully invaded our country 
all of our armed forces and police forces have been killed, and they are now going to be exercising control over our entire nation. And you get the idea of what Habakkuk is thinking when he hears from God that Babylon is coming. He says, I'm going to wait for the day of God's judgment, knowing that you'll be merciful and that even judgment will turn out for the salvation of God's people. How does he know that? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God has done it this way in the past, he'll do it this way in the future. And so he says in verse 17 to 19, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Though the fig tree should not blossom, figs are what you ate as fruit. Though there would be no fruit on the vines, there wouldn't be any grapes to make wine, which is what you drank. Though the produce of the olive would fall, olives are what you used not only to eat, but you also pressed the olives to make oil, which is what you cooked with and baked with. Though there would be no food in the fields. In other words, though there wouldn't be anything to make bread. Though there would not be any flocks in the sheepfold. No sheep, no goats, nothing to eat. Though there would not be any herds in the stalls, all the cattle are also dead. Though every material reason, in other words, that I would have to trust you, God, has gone. Every blessing has disappeared from my life, even then. Even then, I will trust you. I will rejoice even then in the Lord because he is the God of my salvation. He is my strength. He says, God, verse 19, God the Lord, meaning that's my Bible capitalizes that. Covenant God, the Lord. is my strength, and he will enable me to triumph over my enemies, and he will raise me up. He will give me feet like a deer. A deer can go up on top of stuff that you and I would struggle with a stick to climb up a hill. A deer can run up it no problem. He says, God enables me. He gives me strength, even though even my very survival is at risk. I'm going to trust God. As bad as it might get, I'm going to believe in and follow and obey the God who saves his people. Because God's past faithfulness encourages me to trust God in the present and with the future. See, the thing is, there's all kinds of people out there who will tell you one of two things. They will tell you, first of all, that God, because he loves you, will never let any bad thing enter into your life ever. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Nothing in your Bible will tell you that. In fact, if you merely read the Gospels and you see that God allowed his own son to be scourged, crowned with thorns, speared, flogged, crucified, and put to death on your behalf, you will have all the proof that you need that God allows great evil for the purpose of accomplishing great good. But the other thing that you are told is that 
you are to exercise just simply blind faith. That without any evidence at all, you're just to trust God just on faith. And there are people who tell you, well, that's what faith is. When there's no evidence, then you trust God. No. Habakkuk in these last few verses is not saying, have blind faith, just trust God regardless. No, he's saying this. Look back at all the things God has done in the past where God has shown himself faithful to save his people. Look back at all these times, all the way down through history, where God is still the God of salvation, the God who saves his people, the God who delivers in a mighty way, the God who allows judgment but brings mercy with that judgment. Don't trust God blindly. Trust God based on the evidence of what he has done. Trust the God, if if you are a Christian, who sent his son for you. Whenever people ask me, why does God allow good things, I mean, bad things to happen to good people, I say, I don't know, but look at Jesus. Where was God the day that my son, my daughter, my spouse, my whatever was killed? The same place he was when his son was killed. As you look at what God has done in the past and how he has delivered, even through tragedy, you can have confidence, have confidence and trust, not based on just random hope, but based on evidence that God has provided in his acts in history, that he is fully trustworthy, that he loves you, that even in the midst of his judgment, he will bring mercy. And that he is capable not of doing evil that good may come, but of allowing evil and bringing great good out of it and using it for his purposes. So I promised you this morning we would ask and answer the question, how do I talk to God when I don't like what he's doing? Gave you three points. That's the way. Request. Ask God for what you want. Tell him, look, I think this stinks. I want out of here now, yesterday. Okay? It's okay to do that. And then remember what God has done in the past. And then after you have done that, rejoice in your relationship with God, knowing that this life is short. And we serve the God of our salvation. And there is laid up for me, along with everyone who lays, who loves God's appearing, crown of glory. And, and a weight of glory, which is not worthy to be compared with the struggles and the pain of this life. Whatever it is, I can rejoice. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful, that you are always God, that you never change, that you always do bring justice, but in the midst of your justice and judgment, that you bring mercy for your people, that out of great evil and tragedy and pain and suffering and death, even out of these things, Father, you are the God who redeems evil the God who brings out of the worst 
the very best. And who, through the death of even your son, brought the redemption of the world. Father, we pray that we would trust you. That based on all the evidence that you've given us in the past of how you've worked and saved and delivered and been just and merciful, a God of judgment and also a God of love. Father, we pray we would trust you and we would rejoice. Even as we struggle, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.